0: All right, let's flip over to Acts 12. <clears throat> Before we dive into that, I got a note here from Dana. So there's a, we've gotten a couple calls about checks clearing for the tithe. And so here, we're just letting you guys know, basically what happened was uh, our elders at this point, is we went to two services, and typically John comes to the first one. It's a big, long story. Basically unawaredly because we have a kind of a really tight group of people that do the counting. I'm not one of them. Um, as we've talked about before, I'm not, not interested in to know who gives and who doesn't. It's not uh, for me. So um, that being said, essentially it just didn't get counted. So it's in a secure location in its original form. So today we've taken steps. It'll all get counted. Everybody's checks are clear, And I apologize for dropping the ball on that. So Any questions about that, uh, feel free to talk to Dana. Uh, All right, Acts chapter 12. So uh, last week, uh, we looked at more of a concept from Acts chapter 12. Uh, If you weren't here, we looked at the reality that there's just bad things that happen, right? And it's just, uh, for me personally, there's such a stark uh, example of that here, because you have... Uh, James, who is arrested by Herod, it seems to move really fast. He gets arrested by Herod, and he's slain. And by the the way, the language is there, by the way it's written, it seems to just be like Herod arrests actually multiple people because he arrested some that were following the way. And James is the only one that we have recorded that gets slain. And then he sees that that pleases the Jews, and we talked a little about Herod in his past. But he sees that that pleases the Jews, and so therefore he arrests Peter, another uh, Christian uh, leader, and yet Peter is delivered. So on the one hand, James is slain out of a group, and on another hand, Peter is not slain, and he's saved uh, from that fate. For now, he will go on actually to be on crucified, uh, to get crucified, and tradition tells us upside down, with his wife. So although he was saved from death at this point, that wouldn't be the the entire story of his life. So um, in that, we just talked about the fact that we live in a broken world. Sin broke that world. And really what we decide to do with suffering uh, will determine what fruit suffering has in our lives. Uh, And obviously there was more to it, but that's the summary of it. You know, it was interesting, last night I was uh, watching, I don't know if you're paying attention to it, probably not because it's kind of yucky, but they're trying the Golden State Killer. Remember for the 70s and 80s, the serial rapist and killer, uh, I think he had like 50 rapes and 20-something killings that are attributed to him. And there may be more than that. And that was uh, in California, kind of up and down in different places. And I watched, they have victim impact statements uh, at the end of the court, a lot of court cases where the victims get to address the accused and and talk to the accused. Um, and uh, the uh D'Angelo, the, the man that they caught years later because of DNA evidence, came to light. Um, basically, he's kind of feigning that he's this, he's 74 now, that he's kind of weak and so forth. But they have these videos of him in his cell. He's very active, very doing things. He comes to the court and pretends like he's not. Anyway, um, I, I watched this incredible victim impact statement where this woman literally says, you tied me up. You tied my three-year-old son up, and it brought me to find Christ. And so I'm not thankful for what you did, but what you did, the evil you did to me, God used for good, and it's changed my life. And she talks about going on to get her degree as a nurse, and then she went to the Air Force and retired as a colonel, and you know all this just amazing stuff. And so if you get time, you might, if you're a YouTuber, you like looking at that stuff, it's about a 10-minute impact statement. Um, but I thought, man, this was... I I thought about actually playing it this morning because I thought, this is exactly what we were talking about last week. The fact that the absolute worst thing can happen in life. Absolute worst. And if we let it, Christ can use it for good. It was just such an incredible testimony. Uh, I think the title of it was um, What You Did to My Son, something to that effect. It was ABC News. uh, It was a a witness impact statement, and it was "Where was, where, Where Did You Put My Son? Something like that. Um, And just how, yeah, that terrible thing broke her to a place where she found Christ and then went on to live a pretty amazing life in Christ. Anyway, so in Acts chapter 12 this morning, I want to look at the same passage, but we're going to look at it a different way. I am not always a big uh, allegory guy, but as I was reading through this, I uh, and praying through it and so forth, I realized like, we didn't really cover the passage. We talked about, kind of if you want to call it the negative side, although I'm not sure that's the exact way to put it. We talked about the, the difficult side, the side of going through suffering and so forth, but we didn't talk about the amazing side, and that is that Peter's rescued. And so really what I want to go through this morning is kind of just talk allegorically or metaphorically a bit about Peter's rescue and how we can find freedom in our own lives. Uh, because I think there's some really cool steps in here that occur uh, that really can be translated for us so that we can move forward in freedom and in victory in Christ. So it says there, and this is uh, Acts chapter 12 and verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and, uh, excuse me, and centuries before the door regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard they came to the iron gate leading into the city, And it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And we'll stop there. So we see here, I'm just going to look at a couple of steps in this, and I'm not a title guy, I never title them, but I thought, Shoot, if I'm doing allegory like I never do, I might as well wrap a title into it too. And so I call it Peter's Guide to Being Set Free. Peter's Guide to Being Set Free. And uh, just to pick out a few things here. So Herod arrests him. The night that he's about to be executed, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers. So first step to being set, set, set free is go to sleep chained to someone else. It's pretty wild that Peter is chained to two guards, right? This happened to Paul. It happened to Peter. This was a fairly normal thing to do with high-priority uh, uh, you know, prisoners that, that, that uh, Caesar or the Herod of the day, whoever it was, were, wanted to make sure that they were attached. We mentioned it last week. Remember, Peter's already escaped miraculously once. He'd already gone to prison and uh, with John. He's already been there, and they end up getting released. So now this time, there's most likely the idea, we know he's chained, so he's chained between two prisoners, two soldiers, I should say, and then they have two soldiers on the outside of the cell, not to mention the rest of the, kind of the prison organization. And it's noteworthy that where is Peter? He's asleep. Peter is asleep in the middle of this thing. So here's where we're not going to go. We're not just going to say, well, Peter had rest, so you should too. Next point. Because that's pretty worthless, right? There's a a miraculous thing that's occurring here. And we don't know how he got to sleep. And I want to point that out. He might have been sitting there in just radical anxiety and just giving it to the Lord. Here it is. Lord, you delivered me before we deliver me now. Remember, this is the same Peter. Granted, it was years ago. This is the same Peter who sinks while walking on water through invitation from Jesus. You guys remember that when he walks in the water, uh, and he says, "He says they're on the boat," and he says, "Lord, if it's really you, beckon me to come to you on the water." And, and the Lord says, "It's me. Come." And so he steps out of the boat and he gets on the water and he says that walking halfway. Or he didn't say halfway, but walking, he gets a distance, a certain distance out. And it says that he saw the wind and the waves, and he began to doubt, and he sunk. He begins to sink. And so he cries out, Lord, save me. And then Jesus, it says he grabs him and lifts him up. Now, my personal opinion, we don't have any commentary, so I want to be careful here, but knowing Jesus, I personally don't believe that Jesus, like fireman, carries him back, right? Lord, help me. Hey, grabs him, puts him on his shoulders, and I don't think it went down that way. I think the idea more is more likely that he reaches out, pulls them up, and they walk back to the boat together and get into the boat. That's just, again, that's, that's me making an observation of opinion. Uh, it's me putting into the passage. I don't want to be careful with that. But it, I think the point is that there was victory in Christ. There was, he got back to safety and was safe as soon as Jesus grabbed him. But it doesn't negate the fact that he's very similar to us in a lot of ways, right? Peter was beckoned by God to do something. He asked, Can I do this? Jesus said, Yes, you can. He asked, Will you give me the authority to do this and to do the miraculous? And Jesus said, Yes, I want you to come out and do the miraculous. And in the midst of the miraculous, as he's walking to Jesus, evidently pretty close to Jesus, I suppose Jesus could have ran or teleported to him to help him up, but seemingly fairly close to Jesus, he sees the circumstances. And in the circumstances, he notices, I shouldn't be able to do this. I should not be able to walk on the water. In fact, yes, Jesus told me to walk on the water, but those are really big waves. And so the size of the storm, the size of his circumstances, actually in his mind negates Jesus' ability to make good on his promise. And this is something I think we all wrestle with. We're not trying to make Peter an offender. We're not trying to belittle him. I think this is something that we constantly wrestle with. We, oftentimes, we have the Word, which is the most powerful witness of God. But what adds to the Word and what gives the Word its power in our lives, and hear me out here, I'm, just, I'm not making a universal point, is this. The fact that we've experienced the truth, right? Promises of salvation and God's working in our heart aren't going to be worth much to, much to us emotionally or intellectually unless we've experienced the truth of it. Does that make sense? See, Christianity is not blind faith. It's not, it's not just trying to respond. Even salvation is that the Spirit witnesses to our heart. We feel a conviction and we say, yes, I want to invite you into my life and have that forgiveness. So we've never, we're never involved in blind faith. We're just involved in faith that, is walk, that we need to walk through experientially. So what happens here, all these things have happened. He, he's, he's drowned. He's denied the Lord three times and been reinstated for that. He has observed from afar the Lord's trial. Uh, he was, went to the tomb and had difficulties. If you recall that, when John and Peter, after Mary, comes back and says, we went to the tomb, the Lord is risen, uh, his body is not there, we don't know what this means. Actually, I guess at that point they see he's risen. Yeah, they do. Anyway, he says, we don't, this is incredible. And Peter and John both run to the tomb. John runs into the tomb, sees the napkin, and says, and believes, says, the Lord's risen. Peter walks in, sees the same thing, and it says that he did not know what these things meant. So it's, I, one of the things I appreciate about Peter is that throughout his life, he has wrestled with his faith He's wrestled with his calling. He's wrestled with, can I eat with Gentiles? He's he's had a, a, a life of wrestling, a life where he's doubted, a life where he's been angry, a life where he's done all these different things. And yet the Lord continues to work in his heart and continues to move him. So now he's in a place where he's chained, he's imprisoned again. It's pretty clear what's about to happen, I'm sure, because he just watched James go through it. And yet here he is between the two guards, and he's sleeping. And really the point here is this, that even in the worst of our trials, there can be rest. We can rest in the midst of our trials. We can experience uh, what Peter experiences here. But that's going to come through. How is that going to work out in our life? Whether he just had peace supernaturally. You ever had a moment like that where you should be freaking out, and you just have this amazing peace? God's doing something and you're going to be okay with it. And perhaps that's what happened and he went to sleep. Maybe he was battling in his mind going, is the Lord going to save me this time? These are large waves. These are fast winds. Is this where God's going to, or is this it? Am I done? Am I going to see my wife again? Have I, have I made it clear you know, who has the title to our home? They're in Capernaum. Have I, you know, Whatever it might be, the stuff that could go through a person's mind when they're literally facing their death. We don't know how he went to sleep. We just know that he achieved sleep. <laughs> Which I think for many of us is, can be a big struggle. To be able to be in the midst of this crazy thing and to have that. It's funny because in one of my favorite verses, Old Testament promises, if you want to uh, uh, turn there in Isaiah. Isaiah is right before uh, Jeremiah, right after like, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, uh, songs and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, then comes Isaiah But in Isaiah chapter 30, one of the the best uh, encouragements I've ever seen, this is an encouragement that God gives Israel in a place where they're really walking in some pretty substantial rebellion. They've been going to the other nations uh, looking for help uh, because they were under attack. They've been essentially going through all these motions of following God but not at all relying on Him. I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I'm saying that's what Israel's doing. And so the Lord comes to them through Isaiah, and this is what he prophesies. He says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Excuse me, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of uh, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. See there, well, we'll go on. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, to your left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. So God is telling them, he, you know, for protection from the Philistines, protection from uh, everybody, really, all the, all the ites, the Canaanites, if you will. And they're saying, look, they've gone to Egypt, they've gone to all these different countries to say, we need help. And he's saying, "Look, all you had to do was come back to me, and I would have kept you safe." But the key of this, and it's very poetic. I think it's very awesome the wording of it. But he says, "In returning and and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength." Our strength is not in freaking out. Our strength is not in trying to gather everyone to us and tell them all about our problems. Our strength is not in uh, lashing out. Our strength is not in trying to make sure we have our stuff in order, because that's the next thing. He says, you say that we'll flee upon horses. In other words, we're going to use our own methods to deal with our problems. And we do that all the time. And I think I talk about that maybe too much. But just the whole whole thing of self-medication, it doesn't matter if it's Netflix or if it's cocaine, if it's alcohol or if it's nicotine. It doesn't matter. The fact that so often we try to use self-medication to dull our very real pain and anxiety or concern about how this is going to work out or that's going to work out. And God is constantly saying, look, it's not from the freak out, it's not from gathering, it's not from self-medication, it's not from fast horses. He says you're not going to get away from fast horses with fast horses. He says the only way you're going to find peace and safety is you continue return to me and you return and you rest. You let it go. So many times we think, you know, should we be faithful with money? Of course we should. But you know what? At, at the end of the day, God is good, and he's a provider. That's not an scapegoat. That's not, but we don't have to worry. We should be faithful with what we have, and we should not worry about it. In all the different things that can happen in our lives, in all the different ways that we can, you know, be, be concerned about our job or whatever it might be. It's not going to be with our equipment or what we have at our hands that will deliver us. And he says, look, he, says, he, says, they, he quotes him, he says, We will ride upon swift steeds in verse 16. Therefore, you per, your pursuers shall be swift. You know, you ever heard the saying, There's always someone smarter than yourself? There's always a faster steed. <laughs> You ever notice that when we're trying to self-medicate? There's always something that can take your peace away from watching Netflix, right? There's, there's always something from, that can take your peace away, even if you eat a bunch of ice cream. There's always something. You can't get drunk enough to, to not feel your problems after a while. It's just amazing how, how problems work in that way, how difficulties work. I'm In mean, verse 18, therefore the Lord judges you and despises you. Oh, wait. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. This I think, is one of the most radical ideas. And it really goes against the grain of the, the idea that God was really chapped in the Old Testament and just wanted to kill everybody. And then Jesus comes along, kind of talks him off a ledge, and now he's the nice God. No, he was always the nice God. He's always the God. So here he's saying to this rebellious nation, this nation that's despised him, despised his offerings, despised what they have for him, who have not taken advantage of his promise, his care, his hedge, you know, his guard around them, they've always, not always, on the regular, they have rejected it, right? And so his response to that is now I'm judging you and condemning you and I hate you. That's typically our response when someone despises and treats our stuff poorly, right? When we try to help someone, when we're trying to wait for someone, and it gets to a certain point, and we're like, I'm done. I'm done. But God's heart is this. This is after hundreds of years of rebellion. Like, this is generations of difficulty. And God's heart to his people is still this. I'm waiting for you. Here's the deal. If you struggle with sin, God is not condemning you this morning as a believer in Jesus. You are not condemned by God, meaning judgment with a penalty. He says, I'm waiting for you. If you're self-medicating this morning, if you're trying to fix your own problems this morning that really can't be fixed by you, God says, look, I'm waiting for you to come to me. I want to help you, the Lord says. I want to work on your behalf. I want you to keep coming back to me and rest. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, there's a really funny statement, a great uh, ironic statement when he's talking about how Israel didn't go into the land and how there still remains a rest for believers in God. And he says this, he says, We ought to therefore labor to enter into that rest. Work to enter into God's rest. What's the work? Returning in rest. Remember in John 6, they come to him and he's talking about doing God's work. And they say, what should we do that we might work the works of God? He says, this is the work of God. So they ask, what can we do to do all these works for you? He says, this is the one thing. This is the work that you need to do. Believe on Him who He has sent. It's John six twenty nine. The work of God is to believe on Him who He has sent. See, the battle for the Christian, it's not the fighting. It's not the, this emotional battle that can be there. The battle really boils down to belief, trust, faith, trusting God. And it, 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 again, we, I, I probably talk a lot about the idea that for many of us, because I think it's a cultural ideal, it's kind of seeped into the church, we're waiting for the aha moment. We're waiting for the moment where I just change. We're waiting for the moment where I just don't feel anxious anymore. We're waiting for the moment where I just don't feel lustful anymore, where I don't covet anymore. Just I'm just going to be here, and then one day I'll just be different. And then that day never comes. And we continue in the sin, and we begin to loathe ourselves. We begin to, to go through this thing of hatred and despi- despising ourselves and, and really un- not believing God anymore. We reach this crazy low point, and, we, and then we begin sometimes to shift that blame and say, you're not changing me. This isn't working. I've tried so hard for so long, it's not working anymore. But when we look at the reality of what tried means, it means I sat on my couch and watched Netflix instead of going out and getting drunk. It means, I chose this over this. When we have these amazing prescriptions about returning and rest, about trust and repentance, when in reality, we might have been dabbling in those things, but not really giving ourselves to those things. See, there's not very many, there's for some, I suppose, there's not very many moments in Christianity when we're just sitting on our couch, indulging ourselves, and then all of a sudden we just change. It's not how the mind works. That's not how the soul works. And so here he's saying, in returning and rest. Returning. and quietness, in continually being quiet. So there's, in the, in the battlefield of the soul, if you want to call it that, in the reality of walking in a Christian walk, it's always an active thing. And yes, there's days of victory. There's days of defeat. Yes, there's days of complete deliverance. And I do believe that God does heal us over time and we just never deal with those things or very often again. But it's a slow race. Peter had a lot of experience. A lot of things happened to him before he ends up falling asleep between two guards on the evening of his execution. But I think I'd encourage you to take a step or, or steps, I suppose, in your life. And don't get upset with yourself if you're still wrestling with sin. I'm not saying endorse it. I'm not saying, oh, self-love, give yourself a hug. I'm not saying that. But you know what? Don't throw in the towel. But instead, press onward. Press forward. Ask God, what, are, what, would, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There's, there's, and again, there's, there's no legalism here. There's no... But do you have a, a legit devotional life? I've heard this a lot of times, too. and I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. Oh, I've tried to read the Bible, and I got nothing. Okay, cool. I have, too. A lot. You know, my Sunday teachings, I don't just, like, read it once and then be like, okay, cool, well, I didn't get anything, so I guess I'm just going to call it good. If you don't get anything out of reading the Scripture, find out why. Why do you get nothing? Do you have have a a translation that's difficult for you? Do you have uh, do you have a lack of resources in the sense of do you have a concordance? Do you invest in a concordance and do you invest in there's some pretty cool stuff you can do like especially you just get the good old Strong's concordance. I know it's for the King James, but a lot of times you can still use it. Or you can get two Bibles. A King James and then whatever you like reading. Or maybe you like reading King James. I'm not here to poo-poo the King James. But you can get two Bibles. I bet you could do it for like a dollar. And if you can't afford that, we'll help you. You can take one home that's under your seat. That's an ESV. And if you'd like a King James, we'll get you a King James. And you can take that King James and you can go spend like $12.99 at Amazon and get a strong skin coordinates. And then you read in the one that you understand, and you look at the King James, go, I want to know what this word means. And then you take that word, and you fire open your concordance, and you read what that word means, and it really helps. And then you do something crazy. You then f- open to the, the back of the concordance, and you look at every single time that that word is used in the Bible. And some of them, you're like, it's like a 400 times. And all of a sudden, you have a word study on your hands. And here's the thing. You don't have to finish it in one morning. It's not like there's no standard to this. There's no, like, you must to this. There's no rules to this. All of a sudden, you're studying the Scripture. And guess what? When a Bible, I can't remember how many times the word rest comes up in the Bible. It's a lot. But are you going to get something and have this grand revelation every time you you read the word rest and where it's used? No, you're not. Most likely. If you do, come see me because I need some of that. But most likely, you won't. But you're going to begin to study and you're going to see richness, and all of a sudden the living word is going to come alive. And instead of just reading something once and then going, Well, I didn't get anything out of it, and being done and moving on with your life, all of a sudden now you're developing a skill in your life that's going to lead to this rest. And what are you doing? You're returning, you're being quiet before the Lord, you're listening, you're studying. Never mind the fact you can actually just get rid of all that I just said and just go to (laughs) BibleGateway.com or BlueLetterBible.com or BibleHub.com There's probably a million more. Those are the three I know of. And you can look at all sorts of of, uh, commentaries if you want. Word searches, word definitions. We have this amazing... These amazing tools at our feet. It's returning and rest, you shall be saved. The continual motion of returning to God and resting in His word. Peter did not fall asleep between two guards overnight. Peter fell asleep between two guards because of literally at least at least a decade, if not a decade and a half, of walking with Jesus and talking to people about like Jesus. And that's one of the other things, honestly, that helps us in our walk, is service. Serving God. Serving God just in talking to people, serving God in, you know, whatever at the church, serving God at your job, but just being available to be part of what God is doing. I think it's, Corson uh, uh, has an analogy, which I'm not sure where it actually came from, but the, it's the whole idea of putrid water, right? If you have still water, it just gets mossy and nasty, right? Water that just intakes and never outpours. You have to have flow in and out. Or the even better one. Christians are like manure. When they stick together, they just stink. But when they spread out, they're incredibly fertile. <laughs> but the reality is, this is how a walk with God works. And this is how peace works. Peace doesn't work by sitting on our couch and self-medicating until we have godly peace. It just doesn't work that way. And it most likely never will. But walking with God... Is where we see it. Second thing to note and to talk about. So he's there. He's bound with two chains in verse six, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and uh, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, "Get up quickly!" And the chains fell off. And I want to note this. He said, "Get up quickly," and then the chains fell off. The chains didn't fall off, and then he said, "Get up quickly." He said, get up quickly, and then the chains fell off. And again, to the same idea that so many of us are just waiting for the chains to fall off, we say, when the chains fall off, then I'll get up and walk in the victory that God has for me. When in reality, we need to get up, and then the chains fell off. Now, I'm not making a commentary of how the gospel works because uh, the gospel states very clearly that at the time that we believe in Jesus, we are set free and the power of sin is broken. But again, another analogy is uh, if you... There's, I watch too much YouTube on lunch hour, but if you, you ever watch them train an elephant, this is a true story because I looked it up. If you, when they train elephants, they'll take these gigantic like you know, boat ropes or whatever or, or chains... And they chain the elephant's foot with this huge chain and giant shackle thing. And so the elephant will, you know, and try to get out, whatever, wrestle with it. And then eventually it learns, I can't get out of this. I can't get out of this chain. And then after that, they take that chain off and they literally just put like a dog leash around his leg. And then as soon as it feels the tension, it just stops. It's used to defeat. Even though it could easily break free, it's so used to the defeat, it's used to being chained, it's what it's been its whole life, and so it just goes, well, that's the way it is, and it never exercises the power it actually has. And so it is with the gospel. Here's this angel saying, he doesn't say, Peter, here's how this is going to go. First, the chains are going to fall off. The guards are going to stay asleep. I'm going to open the door that's in front of us. We're going to stroll past a couple other guards that are awake, Then I'm going to miraculously open the other big gate, and then you're going to walk out. That's how this is going to work, Pete. So if you wouldn't mind, will you please stand up? No, it's very interesting. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of it, but the word here is literally, he struck him. The idea is he went like, he smacked him. Like, wake up. Get up. Get up. And I think for many of us, that's the word of the Lord for us. Get up. Don't worry about the chains. Don't worry about the guards. Don't worry about the gates. We need to obey God. We need to start getting up. So many of us are saying, Well, the chains are still attached, so I'm not going to bother getting up. When the chains aren't attached, we've just been trained that way. It's that we feel like it. We're entrapped by our own feelings, by our own opinions. When in reality, the chains are gone. Oh, we still have a fallen nature. And we still have a mind that needs to be worked through and changed. But the chains are gone. So I don't, you know, here's the thing. I don't know what's going on in your life, but the reality is God's calling you to get up. And it doesn't matter what it feels like or what it looks like. What matters is the truth. And the truth is that when God is going to deliver you, and He has and He is, then we need not worry about the mode by which it will happen. In another way, in Ecclesiastes, it says that he who doesn't sow because of the, the, the wind will never reap. There's a whole thing on it about, about sowing and reaping. And if, we're, if we say, oh, I love the Proverbs too. Like the, the, they say, oh, there's a lion in the street, and so they never go outside. There's all these, these pictures in the Old Testament about this idea of having basically excuses or worries and saying it'll never work because. When meanwhile, there's an angel saying, hey, stand up. Once we exercise that first piece of faith, the chains will come off. There will be deliverance. It's not an if. See, when it comes to deliverance from sin or difficulty in life, there's no if in it. We treat it like an if. So many times, and I'm not putting anybody down, I felt the same way. You just feel like, oh, how are you doing? I'm surviving. I'm surviving. But that's not what God has called us to. He hasn't called us to survive he says, I, I, I came that they might have a life, and that more abundantly. There in John 10, he says, the enemy comes not to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I came to give them abundant life. You know, abundant means a lot. Whenever I, I hear the word abundant, do you remember in, well, I don't know if you guys did it, in the California school district, like every year from like, I don't know, first through maybe sixth, every Thanksgiving we made a cornucopia, which is just a fun word to say. But remember cornucopias? It's like that big horn thing. I actually, even though I've made one out of card paper, like colored paper, like many times in my life, I don't actually know what the horn thing is. But it's that horn thing, and all the fruit is like flying out of it. Remember when you're a little kid, and it's really fun because you like stick the fruit in there and the grapes and like the bananas and, you know, whatever, the onions and whatever, whatever's going to, you know, the abundance. It's just a bunch of stuff just falling out of this paper horn, right? And the idea is they were so thankful because they had this huge... This amazing Thanksgiving, which two years later, they're actually boiling, boiling the soles of their shoes, but that's a different story. So they were so thankful because they had this, this cornucopia. It's abundant life. And what's life? When, I, when you think of life, it's, it's not just breathing in and out. Surviving is not, when you think of that, I'm going to live life. You don't think to yourself, I just want to emotionally survive and just hunker down and just hope I make it without some gruesome death. That's not what any of us would equate to life. Christ says, I came to give them life and that more abundantly. When you think of life, you think of like, you know, all the commercials where people are dancing around, like Apple products or something like that. Vigor and, you know, all that. Life. Experiencing life. And Jesus says, that's what I came to bring. Freedom. Joy. Peace. All these things that that, that have come in these promises. He says, I've come to bring them life and that more abundantly. There's a pretty tremendous verse in Romans um, Romans chapter six. And we'll probably actually, uh, be doing this again next week. I knew this would be uh, kind of a large idea. So, in my see- in my in my journey to try to be a better Bible teacher, I've learned. I'm trying to learn to uh, piecemeal stuff to make it more. Um, Easier to understand and to not just shove a bunch of junk in. But in Romans chapter 6, not that I think the Bible's junk. Please don't email me. Uh, He says there in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to stop there for a second. Romans 6, well, let me back up even farther. Romans 5, so you can impress your Christian friends, is, is the doctrine of federal headship which just means that the way that God looked at humanity is that when we were in Adam, both seminally and spiritually, that when Adam sinned, we sinned because we were in Adam. And so the whole world was condemned in Adam because of sin, because Adam could only create more sinners. So because the whole world and all humanity was condemned in Adam, Adam, so also, all those who believe on Christ will be made righteous in Christ. So we were made sinners in Adam. This is like a Cliff Notes version of something that people study their whole lives. Since we were sinners in Adam, we can be righteous in Christ, federal headship, federal being, you know, the, the whole and the one down and the heads, the two heads, Adam and Jesus. So because we were all con- con- condemned in sin in Adam, so anyone who believes and trusts Christ can be righteous in Christ. Then in chapter 6, he's going to say, he's going to go on and says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he's going to now, because we're made right in Christ, he's going to address the idea that should we just keep sinning since we're made right in Christ? The idea that sin is completely forgiven in Christ. You are completely cleansed, past, present, and future. So does that give me the right to sin? And in, in, in chapter 6, he's in the beginning, he's going to say, no, it's not, because we died with Christ, we're buried with Him, these are the truths that we have, and now we're risen with Him, and we live a resurrection life because of Christ. Again, things to be studied for hours upon hours that we're just making a Cliff Notes version of. So the conclusion of the fact that we've been died, been buried, crucified, and rose again, in Christ, that these things are accounted to us in Christ, meaning we're not judged by the law anymore because we died in Christ. And now that we don't live spiritually by our own strength, we now live in the, in the life of Christ and the new man that he created. Okay? So his, then he's going on to the second portion of it, and he's saying this So you must also consider yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God. In other words, the idea is. And the word there is reckon. You must also reckon yourselves. It's an accounting term. Because of these truths that have happened to us in Christ, we tally those up and then we we reckon ourselves. The end result is draw the remember the long line, that means your answer is on the bottom. So the answer or the sum of what we read is this that we have died with Christ, and sin no longer can dominate us, or not can, but should not. We're not slaves to sin anymore. So he's going to go on, he's going to say, let sin, therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been uh, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law and, but under grace. Verse 14, again, is like a whole concept in its in itself but the, these these initial verses here in 12 and 13 he's saying look let not don't let it when you tell someone don't let that happen what are you saying you have control over this make sure that doesn't happen right you tell your kids brush your teeth I don't know why brushing teeth is for some reason when you're a child like this life-ending event have you ever notice that where like, I remember being a child too, and it was like, brush my teeth? Stand in the bathroom for like two minutes doing this? Why is that so hard? It is, is, though. But don't let your teeth rot. Some pretty simple steps to be made. Floss a little bit, brush your teeth, whatever it might be. So he's saying, look, you have an option as to whether or not sin reigns in your body in your life, in in, in this life, which is fascinating because the cry of society, including our own selves, is, I couldn't help it. I could not help it. Now, there's some nuances to that. When you start looking, I mean, if you, again, YouTube and me and other, actually other places, I watch a few doctors' uh, seminars and so forth, but when you look at the human brain in addiction and things like that, it's pretty radical how the human brain changes. And so somehow, your eternal soul, who you are, your essence, has to operate bodily through a brain, which is weird. But that's how it works, right? My soul, intrinsically, that God has given me and created, then has to be, uh, really, to express itself through a body, has to use a brain. And brains have problems. You ever notice that? Even big problems diabetes. You ever seen someone who gets super low blood sugar? They get combative. They get angry. They get unreasonable. They hallucinate. They can't deal with any kind of thing. You ever just been hypoglycemic where you're just like, everything sucks because I'm hungry, right? That's not who you are. It's your soul trying to operate through a brain that's being deprived of glucose. And there's many, many, many other things that can go wrong with a human brain and things that change the human brain. Being molested between the ages of five and eight will make per- permanent synapse connections of what you find attractive in your brain. There's tons of studies on it now. There's actually videos where you can watch neuroplasticity, your brain changing, as it happens. So it's kind of funny because 2,000 years ago, the Bible was right. We need to keep giving ourselves to God. Why? Because we've got to change our brains. It's a changing of the soul, but it's a changing of the brain. Like, wow, God's really smart. He just didn't say to them in technology that they don't have, well, here's what's happening. You see, you have a brain. and all God's just always been right. And so for, for, for many of us, as we're kind of working through this, we need to remember, stop presenting yourself to sin. Stop giving your members. Your brain is one of your members. Something terrible comes in. I hate that person. I hate that person. They wronged me. Whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, they wronged me. They've never asked for forgiveness. They need to change. I hate that person. How many of us, don't raise your hands, because I think it's probably all of us, perhaps, have dwelt upon hating someone and just mold it and mold it and mold it over in our minds, right? It's very. It's funny because it's very similar to addicts. No matter what they're addicted to, whether it be porn or uh, alcohol, whatever it is, just this thing, it becomes... And actually, in an addict, over time, the way certain uh, chemicals work, it begins to block out your cerebral cortex where you make decisions. And we don't have to be scared of this science and go, James is just using psychology instead of the Bible. No, I'm not. I'm telling you how you work and how walking what the Bible says will change how you work. The only difference is, the great difference is this, that we have supernatural power through the spirit of Christ to be changed. So when you, when you finally have blocked out the cerebral cortex, where you actually think, like they, have, you know, it's, very, I encourage you, check a, take a look at it. You can watch people think. You can watch the monitor where the electricity is coming up, what's happening in the brain where they think, where they like something, they don't like something. There's like three centers of your brain that work in a loop to determine what you do and don't like. When you feel fond of something, it's not a soul thing, it can be, but it's the fact that your brain releases dopamine when you see somebody you like. You feel close to somebody, it's because your brain has learned that you appreciate that person and it releases a chemical. Again, I'm not saying the Bible is wrong, I'm not saying that there's no miraculous power, I'm saying this is God created human beings to work a certain way. And the more that we present ourselves to sin, the more that we just offer our lives to sin, the more we become a slave to that thing we offer ourselves to. It's how we work. It's crazy, but it's how we work. So he says, you don't have to be. We don't have to be slaves to sin. But he says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. And Paul lays it out. He says, you're forgiven. In Christ, there is no condemnation to you. Your sin is not imputed to you, meaning God doesn't charge you with it or blame you for it. It will not come up in the judgment as far as whether you go to heaven or hell. Your sin has been dealt with. But if we continue to present ourselves to sin. In Peter's case, if we're sitting there and we're chained and we just roll in this anxiety loop, this could happen and then this can happen. I might die, I won't see my wife, but, but, but God, but I don't know because I might die, I might see my wife. The crazy loops we get into our thinking, he's, that would be presenting his member to sin, to unbelief. And so it comes along for us to say, I cannot present myself to sin. If I do, I make myself a slave to that. We have control over, in a sense, who we serve and our destiny in that service. If we give ourselves to sin and we yield to sin in our lives, missing the mark, we talked about that last week, anything outside of love, then we will reap death. Not just death will die someday, most of us will do that, but death in the sense that I have separation from God, from people around me. I die. If we yield to sin, we become a servant to sin. And again, that's congruent with addiction science and how the brain works. It's crazy. And we can even notice that we can even just get addicted to certain ways of thinking. And in other words, if we continually give ourselves to loops of fear or loops of covetousness or loops of whatever, you ever notice that that kind of goes to your first thought? If we're we're dealing with people and our our constant uh, thought loops are all based around the fact we don't like people, then typically we'll deal with those people and we'll immediately not like them. And then they have to earn something. They have to have some sort of extra to kind of break off of that loop. Oh, I can kind of put them in the friend category now. It's crazy how we work. And here's Romans 2,000 years ago saying, this is how you work. If you present yourself to sin, you will reap death from it. He says, but if you present yourself to righteousness. Well, does that mean doing good works? No, it means presenting myself to Christ. He is the righteous one. He is the source of all righteousness. Jesus is the source of everything that is right. And his spirit now dwells in me and has attached itself or himself to my soul, wherever that means. I don't know how that works physically. I'm not convinced that the soul is in the body, but that's getting weird. So, because it says we're seated in Christ in heavenly places with Christ, So I don't know. We'll see. But so we have this soul now attached to, bonded to, the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is putting input into our life. And if I yield to the spirit of righteousness, the spirit of Christ, when he calls me to love, when he beckons me to stand up in my chains, when he's inviting me to walk out an open gate, if I yield myself to him and let him work in my heart and obey him, Then I am now going to reap something and it's life. It's fruit. It's the fruit of His Spirit. Listening to God's Holy Spirit has an outcome. A given, destined outcome. Like a spiritual postulate. Remember geometry? He had all those postulates. you had to learn all that. It's a spiritual postulate. If I listen to the Spirit, this will happen. Life, peace, and so forth. If I listen to the flesh... This will happen. The flesh will never reap righteousness. And I don't mean right, necessarily just rightness with God, although that's true, but the fruit of righteousness. In other words, if I go back to the self medication, because I think for maybe it's just me and I'm just exposing too much myself, but I think a lot of times when we try to fix or push away our problems through not dealing with them, not the Spirit, um, whatever it might be, when we do that, it feels good for a time, doesn't it? In other words, if I sit down, if I've had a rough day or whatever it might be, things are pressing in on me, I'm feeling the pressure of the world, and I say, I'm gonna sit down and watch a couple episodes of whatever, or I'm gonna sit down and, and read whatever I read, or I'm gonna sit, and I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna deal with those problems because they seem too tough. Instead, what I'm gonna do, because uh, I don't really feel like getting into the fight and actually having to deal with my thoughts and actually give them to God and continue with that. I'm not mocking that. I think that's a, a fairly regular event sometimes. Instead of doing all that, instead I, I say I'm going to start watching Netflix over here or whatever it might be, or Amazon Prime, whatever you got going for you, the newspaper, whatever it is. Uh, or I'm going to start watching videos where other, other people make fun of other people because that'll be healthy too, or whatever it might be. Or I'm going to start watching videos where Christians judge other Christians because that'll be really healthy too. You know All the stuff that we like to watch, right, and we do that, and it feels good for a time, right? Have some laughs, maybe some, yeah, that's right. But they're all the flesh. And then after you finish doing that, what happens? We well, use guilt, shame, anger. Nothing got dealt with. Nothing went away. Nothing changed. But it felt good for a couple hours. So the thing is, yielding to the flesh will always reap death. It always will. Yielding to the Spirit will always reap life and peace. And here's the thing, and I want to be kind with this. We are without excuse in this. And I am too. We. Us. If I'm not taking steps forward, if I'm not devoting what God has called me to in order to find what He has for me, devoting myself to what he's given me to find him. It's a me problem. I'm doing that. And I need to be accountable for it. And I can't blame God. I can't blame my friends. I can't blame the economy. I can't blame the Oval Office. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame any of that. I have to blame me if I'm not moving forward in the promises that God gave me. Because his word is true. And so I would encourage you. I had no idea where Past time, I gotta get new glasses or something. But I, I apologize because we're way past time. Um, so we'll we'll wrap it up in some prayer. And I encourage you. You know, God has great things for you, and don't walk out of here uh, in rebellion, but walk out of here in, in fellowship. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the fruit of your spirit, which is wonderful, and and life-giving and refreshing, and we just pray, Lord, for your blessing in our lives. Uh, We pray for the movement of the Spirit in our lives, and we pray that you would help us to walk in victory and to uh, account you as true. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.